All right, all right, all right. Well, let me uh, let me pray for us. It's good to be back. I was here digitally last time. It was super awkward for me. Hopefully, it was not quite as awkward for you. Um, but uh, but good to be back here in person. Let me pray for us, and we will we will get into things. Um, God, we are grateful to gather as the uh, assembled body of Christ to proclaim. Um, a, a what of the gospel and your truth, how to live in light of it, to look at one another as professors and to say, yes, you are part of this embassy of a far country. And we stamp you in light of your membership here, your participation. God, help us as we continue to think well about um, who's authorized to do what and authority and just why it matters practically that this is not just an intellectual exercise, but this really makes uh, significant difference in the life of the church and a way that we even think about ourselves as members of it. So pray that you would um, allow us to absorb uh, the teaching this morning and it would result in a higher view of what the church is, a personal sense of worship as a result in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, so last time we were together uh, digitally, I it was a by the way if you if you didn't see the last digital Sunday school you really need to go watch it and that's not because I think that I'm awesome it's because it's a critical argument uh, chapter 16 of Matthew the giving of the keys chapter 18 the exercising of the keys for church discipline if you didn't get to see that we talk about what is the exercising of the keys what's going on there who are the two or three that are gathered uh, what is that is a very important I don't have time to rehearse any of that today. So please go back and watch that because I'm not going to touch on it, but it's a critical point um, in terms of establishing this kind of cumulative case that we are making for answering the question, who's authorized to do what? Where does the authority lie? Um, last time we looked at Galatians 1, where the keys are required to be used by the church to even judge teaching. Paul comes back and says, if I say something that was different than what I said before, or even an angel shows up and said, hey, you got this part of the gospel wrong, we are to say, no, no, you got it wrong. We have it right. They trust the churches in Galatia to, to, to discern true and false teaching. First Corinthians 5, keeping the camp holy, when they are assembled together in the name of Christ, they're to turn this man over to Satan, who's been involved with his, his, uh, his father's wife, whatever, whatever that ends up meaning. First Corinthians 6, you have a reference to resolving disputes in the church. And he's talking about, is there not anyone among you who can't resolve these disputes? Y'all are appealing outside the church externally. Um, and notice the external there wasn't to some regional presbytery. It was to, they're going before these courts. They're going for human courts. He's like, you should be able to deal with this in-house. And he doesn't say, where are the elders? Tell them to get up there and make a ruling. He says, appeals to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Is there not anyone wise enough among you to settle these disputes? Okay. Seems to be, again, the congregate, it doesn't need to go beyond the congregation there. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 2, the punishment by the majority. Who is this person exactly that was under church discipline? Is it the person from 1 Corinthians 5? Uh, uh, people disagree, but regardless, he says the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient. You just cannot get away from the fact that there was some kind of something resembling a vote, uh, the majority means short of um, 
unanimity. It means that there wasn't every single person was on board with it, but the congregation came together and made a decision that this person, we could not affirm this person's, person's profession of faith. Um, so I want to touch on just two or three more points and close up this section, and then I'm going to give you a shotgun list of arguments if you've been checked out the whole time. And I'm going to move through them very quickly, but I want you, I want you to feel the cumulative weight of the case that I've been trying to make. Um, and then we're going to talk about some distorted understandings or misconceptions about congregationalism. That's how I want to try to land the plane today. And next time we'll either finish up or we'll move into the next section. Okay, the first um, in terms of wielding the keys here is Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5, the keys without elders. So if you'll recall, these are the two examples where Paul and then uh, Paul and Acts and then Titus uh, in Titus are are appointing elders in churches that already exist. What is it? Well, we've already seen these would be churches, a church that could, for example, carry out the process of Matthew chapter 18, that could conduct church discipline, that could wield the keys. The thing is, they don't have elders. They don't have elders. They're, they, they are appointing. He is going to churches and appointing elders. So these are incomplete churches. They're not fully formed, fully mature churches, but they're true churches. They're true churches, but they do not yet have elders. They can wield the keys, but they do not have elders. And therefore, the argument goes, you don't have to have elders are not what elders are not the, the officers. The professionals are not the ones who have the authority. It doesn't get kicked up to them because you can wield the keys without them there, despite not being a, a, a complete church. New, new, the New Testament letters, you'll notice, are often addressed, most often addressed to entire congregations, the ones that are addressed to particular churches. Um, it's not addressed to the elders to make sure y'all don't misunderstand all of this, right? To the elders to make sure that y'all don't whiff theologically in interpreting this. It's to the whole church. It's to the church, the church, the ecclesia, they are the recipients of the letter. They are who is addressed. They're supposed to be understanding the letter. And in fact, uh, and this is one that I did not touch on. It's worth touching on just very, very briefly. In Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, um, if I can find it here. Here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I said chapter 2. I meant chapter 3. You have an instance of uh, what appears to be what, what is almost certainly church discipline. It's the church discipline passage everyone seems to forget about. Um, and it, and it confirms the point we're making here that the, the, the authors of these letters, particularly Paul, um, positioned their audience, the church, as responsible for understanding and obeying the content of the letters and identifying people among them who were not doing so, and if they would not listen, to put them out. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is what we read. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. So recognize, identify people who are not doing what we say, which presupposes understanding and presupposes obedience and presupposes that I'm looking out for other people being obedient, right? So if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, with him, excuse me, that he may be ashamed. This is language of you are not a part. We're not having anything to do with you. You are outside the camp. That's the shame language. But do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Hey, Bethany. Yeah. They're saying hi. You're friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
do not so yeah, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So these 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 um, letters often most oftentimes are addressed. The situational ones are addressed to whole churches, and there is an expectation of understanding, obedience, identifying people who aren't doing that, and if. And if people are not obeying a letter that they're to be put out so they can be put to shame, not as someone who's an enemy, but a shame that leads people back. So picture this exact same thing we see in Matthew uh, chapter 18. We see in the beginning of 1 Timothy, I've handed them over to, to, to Satan, to be Hymenaeus and Alexander, to be taught not to blaspheme. This isn't some kind of, um, I'm angry at you, and so you are... Uh, 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 you are um, you're attacking the church, this and that. You might, they might in one sense, but the idea is I'm warning them as a brother. Uh, and I'm, this, this is how we're warning you. This is this redemptive picture of discipline here where you're going to be put to shame because we're not going to have anything to do with you. Okay? So second point here as we continue. This is actually second to last point, but second point on this uh, slide. And then the final argument here is the, the idea of the ecclesia in Greek thought. Um, out of multiple words that could have been used, ecclesia was chosen to denote the church. Um, we, the, the Jewish background here has already been mentioned. The assembled people of Israel translates the Hebrew word kahal. Okay, especially in Matthew where you're talking about church, that's certainly what people would have would have would have thought of. The assembled, the gathered people of God. Ecclesia. He could have used the word for synagogue, which was already in use and is something that developed. Um, it's an extra biblical uh, development, and they could have Christianized the synagogue and called churches instead of ecclesia the synago, the synagogos, or what? What is it? Synagogin, I believe it is. Um, but no, ecclesia. Um, and so there's a new Old Testament background, but potentially just as instructive as that Old Testament background is actually the Greek background to ecclesia, koine Greek. That was the, 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 the language that was being spoken there. And what the ecclesia of all involved in Greek thought, listen to this, is an assembly of citizens who shared rule together and each one had one vote in doing so. It was not an assembly of subjects merely waiting to follow a ruling. Okay, so let me read that one more time. So the ecclesia in Greek thought was an assembly of citizens who shared rule together, and each one had a vote in doing so, and not an assembly of subjects merely waiting to follow ruling. So both informed by the Jewish background and by the Greek background of ecclesia, it seems to suggest that you have the that there is some kind of authority and there is some kind of decision making that is that the entire gathering, the assembly, is endowed with here. So here's what we're gonna do. Where does the authority lie? If you have missed, we're going to kind of, I've, I've given you a lot of trees. I'm going to zoom out. I'm going to give you 10 shotgun arguments, 10 shotgun arguments for this, okay? I know that sounds extreme, but just bear with me. I'm going to put them all up here, and I want you to feel the cumulative weight of this. I'm not going to mention the covenantal trajectory that I already mentioned, talking about the priesthood of believers and union with Christ. If we all have the law written on our hearts, if we all know God, if we don't have to teach one another, like Jeremiah 31 says, it might stand to reason by kind of theological inference that we could police our own churches. It kind of sets the stage, but it's not a decisive knockdown argument. It's not enough to do good theology on, okay? It's, a, one, of the, it's one of the stand to reason arguments, which is fine, but it's not, it's not how I like to do things. So here's the, uh, here's the summary list, okay? Let's knock these out. Number one, where does the authority lie? 
Well, it seems to lie in the church because the final court of appeal in church discipline is the church, not only the elders. In Matthew 18, 17, the elders being part of a church, but the final court of appeal, remember in that progression, is the church, not elders, and not someone outside of the eldership either. Take them to the regional synod. Take them to the regional presbytery. Take them before the ecclesia, the gathered people. That person still does not repent. Treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Number one, final court of appeal in church discipline is the church, not the elders only. Number two, the church can be the, can be the final court of appeal because it possesses and can exercise the keys with the preauthorization of heaven, not only elders. We talked about this, the preauthorization principle yesterday that appears in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, that whatever you bind or loose will have been bound or loosed. And I've made the case that because of that those perfect participles suggest that something has already been done that has enduring effect going into the present. And so that, that, uh, you will be, that the church will be authorized to use the keys in these particular ways. The church has the keys, and you get the same phrase there in Matthew chapter 18 as you have in Matthew chapter 16 of the implementation, the binding and loosing language. The church has and can exercise the keys. So the church, it would stand to reason, exercises the authority. That seems to be where the authority lies. Third, there's a third argument coming out of 18, which is why last time was so important. Jesus locates his authoritative presence in a gathering of believers, a two or three minimum, not a church subgroup or a group outside the church. Okay, so if you weren't there last time, I made an argument for two or the two or three gathering being not a small group, um, not, not, it, it being the minimum number of people that could constitute a key wielding entity. Okay, basically the minimum number of folks you could have for a church. Okay, so go back. If you missed that, again, I don't have time to, to tease out that argument. Again, go back and look at it. It's not talking about small groups. It's not talking about anything like that. It's talking, it's, it says, I tell you again, and then we get that part. Okay, so he's repeating what he already said in Matthew 18, which is about church discipline and wielding the keys. So Jesus' authoritative presence is in a gathering of believers. So where does the authority lie? In the gathered body. Uh, number four, there is no mention of bishops or elders, that is, overseers or uh, elders, in Matthew chapter 16 or 18, the two chair texts for understanding the possession and exercise of the keys. They're just not there. It's, it doesn't appear anywhere in the text that the elders are the ones who have all of the authority kicked up to them, and then the responsibility to rule is abdicated by the congregation, and then they are left to do that, like the other model that we've been contrasting this one with. Number five, Paul invokes the language of being assembled together explicitly with the authority and presence of Christ when he charges the entire Corinthian church, not just the leadership, to publicly hand a man over to Satan. This is not a, a, a closed door meeting that happens. He says, when y'all are all gathered together and the, and the power of, and the presence of Christ is with you, sounds very much like that Matthew 18 language of wherever two or three are gathered, there I am among you. They're going to have the gathered body coming together, the presence of Christ, and they're going to make an authoritative public declaration on behalf of heaven. Next, Paul tells the entire congregation, not elders or bishops at Corinth, that they are responsible for making judgments on disputes over interpersonal wrongdoing inside the church. We already talked about that one. Next, Paul tells the Galatian churches, not their elders, not their elders, that they are responsible for identifying and rebuking distortions of the gospel, even if they come from himself or an angel. 
So remember, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly, I'm astonished. Clearly his expectation is that they're not, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting us and turning to another gospel. Even if I come back or an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel other than what we preach, let him be accursed. You're supposed to be able to say, no, I'm sorry, that's not what you told us the first time. You're wrong. Angel from heaven shows up and said, you got this, y'all are doing really well, but you got this part of the gospel wrong. You're supposed to say, no, no, you, you have it wrong. You have it wrong. And you're clearly not a real angel as a result. That's a heavy, heavy burden that he gives the congregation to discern false teaching, even from eminent church authorities. Okay? Directed to the congregations here, not elders. And don't you think, I mean, if, if what a perfect place if elders ruled like that, wouldn't that be a perfect place to say it? Elders of the churches of Galatia, what are y'all doing? Why aren't y'all, why aren't y'all discerning this for everybody else and telling them that this is the wrong thing? Now, certainly they would be involved in that because we're arguing that elders are a part of the church. But again, it's not directed to a particular class of super theologically educated or trained folks. It is the task of the whole church to identify and guard teaching here and wield the keys in this way. Acts 14.23, churches can exist, as we just looked at, as key wielding and exercising entities without elders. It's an incomplete church, but it's still a genuine church. Next, much of the New Testament is written to entire churches, not only to the elders, but the expectation that the letters will be understood, identified as faithful, obeyed, and that they will disfellowship those among them who do not heed the content of letters. Whole church activity. Whole church activity. And then finally, the last argument we talked about, the Greek word ekklesia, both in Jewish and first century Greek context, understood ekklesia to refer to a gathered body, with the Greek concept including the ability to shape decision-making through voting rights as opposed to enact the ruling, um, as opposed to enacting the ruling of a sovereign is, is how it should read. Okay. Oh, sorry. Y'all, y'all couldn't read it? Y'all couldn't just like see it through the black screen there? All right, so I'll give you everyone opportunity to read that last one. Um, Okay, so I don't know, I lost count. That's 10 or 11 arguments for answering the question. Somewhere asked, where does final authority lie on earth in the matter of the church? Where does it lie? We started our time together entertaining a variety of responses to that question. We're going to go into this in just a second. We're going to revisit it. I'm going to see how the pieces fit together and like why this actually matters. Because you could still say, yeah, great, who cares? All right, whatever. I'm going to show you how they actually make practical, serious practical differences here. But I want to pause, take a time out, and ask for any questions uh, about any of the particular arguments uh, about the concept in general. What questions or how can I explain something better? Um, what do you have for me before I continue to move on to the who cares and then to the um, uh, clearing up misconceptions? Yeah, John. I guess you already kind of answered this, but you said that it was an incomplete church. Yeah. They didn't have elders for that. Yeah. Acts 14.23. Mm-hmm. How long? How long? How long do you need to, you know, how long do you need before somebody gets old and maybe gets old? Yeah. How long? How long? How long do you need to complete church? So, are you saying? So, are we envisioning ourselves in a situation where we are a church, but we don't have a pastor? And you're, we're trying to say, okay, well, how long? A home, so you're starting a church. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, so if you remember, the difference between a small group, uh, I've argued this from the beginning, the difference between a small group of Christians or a Bible study and a church is polity. It's polity. Organization in the, in the sacraments, okay, the, the ordinances, because those are key-wielding exercises, okay? The baptism, a, thor- a public symbol of joining the one to many, Lord's Supper, the many to one, confirming who we are. So if we're in a situation where you're saying we have a, ch- now maybe what you're asking is how do we, how do we do that? How do we become a church? But if I understood correctly, it's like we are a church. Say we're in another country, let's say even we're a house church. Any persecuted? We got a small, tiny little church here. Uh, we don't, we don't have an elder, right? We don't have a pastor, someone who feels called to that role. Well, because the because of the requirements for an elder, there's someone he needs to aspire to be an elder. Right, and there's someone who needs to be qualified to be an elder. Um, that 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 little church is going to need to prayerfully consider if anyone could be developed or develop even develop a des, uh, have a desire, or that can they bring someone in? Can they can they bring someone in from down the road? Can they do something like that? Because the worst thing you can do is resort to pragmatism and say, okay, let's get an unqualified elder in here just so someone you know because you got to have a chief and some Indians, and you know, we're lacking a chief here. And we're going to get someone in here to, to do it, right? So how long until uh, until a qualified man internally or externally presents himself to serve in that capacity? Does that make sense? Good. Yeah, really good question there. Any other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it never happens, I mean, it's hard. It never happens. But the 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 purpose of the Acts fourteen twenty three and Titus five one is to say you are a genuine church. You're a genuine church. You, you don't get to be, you know, um, that there is. It is not a complete picture of a New Testament church. But sometimes, you know, situations like some of the like the one we just painted, um, it, it's um, not ideal. It's not ideal. Philippian jailer getting baptized in the middle of the night wasn't ideal either. I don't understand that to be the normative practice for for baptism as a public symbol and someone's getting baptized in the middle of the night when nobody's around. But there there are certain there are certain times where a broken ankle is still an ankle. Okay? Or an incomplete picture is still a genuine picture. And I think that's what we're that's the kind of thing we're working with here. All right. Any other questions? Two great questions. All right. Well, let's move on to who. So, who cares? So, we've I've made an, I try to make the best case that I can that the authority here, the earthly authority to speak on behalf of heaven, lies with the assembled body of Christ. So, essentially, in the local church, not just elders of particular local churches, and certainly not a more hierarchical system. Who cares? So, I'm putting a lot of text up here because it's important. I want you to be able to read it. I was like, oh, this is a bad PowerPoint best practice, but y'all, y'all be okay with it, okay? So, here we go. So. To Stephen's point, Stephen made this point uh, really well the other day, and I can't improve on it, so I'm not going to try. Who cares about all this? Number one, if a church doesn't have a theology of where authority lies at all, so we're not getting into the... i got a fly assaulting me up here, folks. Did y'all see this thing? It's like out to get me. Okay, I'm sorry. If there is no authority uh, at all of where, uh, no theology, excuse me, of where authority lies at all, then functionally, 
Not saying that if you went and interviewed someone in the church, they would say this, but functionally, they will veer in one of two directions, either authoritarianism or just individualism. You will get the most um, individualistic, uh, um, t- purely democratic, uh, I-, I am going to do what's right in my mind with just other people around. Maybe I hope we agree. It's going to be a what does everyone think situation Um, total individualism that just happens to be in the same building. Or you'll get someone stepped up and said, hey, guess what? Like to Josh, we we need need a chief and some Indians, and I'm going to rule because someone's got to take the reins. You know what? Look at these people. They're sheep without a shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Me. Okay? Someone's, you know, and and so, um, and now I don't have a, a good theology to undergird my authority, so now exactly how do I wield it? Eh, I don't know. I just, I'm going to try to, I'm going to wield it based off models that I've seen, or I'm going to wield it with a heavy hand to try to get the outcomes that I want. I don't have a theology to undergird why I have authority. I just end up kind of being an authoritarian. When I, you know, when I speak, it should be listened to. It should be obeyed. When I step up, I expect people to follow, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Just because I'm the guy up here, because I'm the authority. That's why. All right, so that's what happens if you don't have any theology of that at all. You're at a loss to really have a good way to explain why someone ha- why there is authority at all anywhere in the church. And functionally, that will lead you to someone stepping up as a matter of pragmatism and taking the bull by the horns illegitimately um, or without a, a foundation for doing so or just rampant individualism. Okay, but suppose you come to a different conclusion than me on this. Um, Let's look at a couple different answers. If a church has a theology of final authority that places it in tradition or succession, then authority in the church will functionally stand over the Word of God as its authoritative interpreter. Okay, so this one might take a little bit more teasing out. Um, But this point right here is why the formal sufficiency of Scripture, which is the clarity of Scripture, it's understandable, and the sufficiency of Scripture, meaning all of the pieces are there. They're all there. We can understand it in terms of life and godliness. Okay, Both of those pieces, it's all there, and we can understand it, is the linchpin of the Protestant Reformation. It is. It really is where the authority lies. It's not justification by faith alone. Okay? Because justification by faith alone assumes a particular understanding of the Bible, right? Well, if you can't interpret the Bible, or if the church, or if tradition and succession has the authoritative call to interpret the Bible, then it doesn't then 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 you know too bad for the Protestants. And they knew this. They knew this all it came down to who has the authority to interpret the scripture. And if you have um if you have an understanding of authority that places it in tradition leading up to the, the Pope uh, and the teaching magisterium and the ordinary and extraordinary magisteriums throughout church history, um, and then you have, or succession is the case in our Eastern Orthodox friends where I said, you know, they have uh, elders who are actually regionally local, really local autonomous churches, but they have elders who are made legit by the placing of hands in the kind of the right way and saying the right things, and therefore they succeed the apostles in a particular way that gives them authority. Um, and I was actually listening to a Greek Orthodox brother. Uh, uh, I was going to quote him, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to waste our time or spend too much time. I guess it wouldn't be a waste. But talking about this very point here, where he was talking about Protestants think that you can just interpret the Bible 
with, with your, yourself. He's like, I think it's really good. He actually said this. He said, you know what? The Protestant Reformation was just, it was so sad. But you know what? It's a, but it was so good that these, these Christians, they read their Bibles regularly. Like they have daily time reading their Bibles. So y'all know that's not a cat, like that's not a Catholic thing in many cases. It's not. My friend, my next door neighbor of the house we just moved from said, their, their, their priest at his Catholic church said that they discourage us from reading the Bible because they really can't understand it. This is exactly what happened uh, earlier on in the Catholic Church. Well, not earlier on. I mean, it's still happening. But they were like, listen, we got to have a bunch of uneducated people who aren't theologically trained. They're going to ruin the gospel. We can't just let them go read it under a tree by themselves. We're not going to translate this into the regular languages. We're going to keep it in, in Greek and in Latin. Because the educated people need to be able to do this. This is too. This is too. Uh, this is too important to give to people who aren't educated. That was part of it. So, but if you have the authority and tradition or succession, then that will be the that will be the lens through which Scripture is actually interpreted functionally. It will functionally be the authority. This is what you get in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Okay, so if you start arguing with a, if a if you start arguing with a Catholic, have you ever done this? Um, and when I say when I use the word argue, I don't mean being contentious. I just mean having a conversation with. You'll notice it's like two ships passing in the night. You're making arguments from Scripture. They're making arguments from what tradition says about Scripture, and it's like because <laughs> once they step onto the the playing field of Scripture, they'll say, "Well, no, we're not supposed to be able to interpret the Scripture apart from tradition." Look what that did. Look how many denominations there are. Look how many disagreements there are among really sharp theologians. See, y'all can't understand it. Y'all need the. We have the Pope. We have. If you go go back to the uh, the doctrine of the word, the in, the infamous doctrine of the word. Sunday school class, I, t I talk about this at length, okay, about the, the, the argument from disagreement, which is weaponized by our Catholic friends to say that you, no one can understand it. If you did, there wouldn't be so much disagreement. We need the Pope. We need apostolic succession to give authoritative interpretation. Okay, so you would you agree with me that's a pretty big deal? If you locate authority in succession or tradition, you get something that functionally stands over Scripture as its, uh, as its interpreter, as its interpreter. Okay, if the church has an understanding of final authority that places authority beyond the congregation, so either at the top or outside the local church altogether, a presbytery, a general assembly, a synod, or whatever, then church members are functionally fired from their God-given responsibilities to wield the keys. Why? Because what you have to say whether this person should be a member or not doesn't really matter. Whether church case for church discipline comes up, you're not you're not that didn't get voted on. It's what the elders say it is. It's what the presbytery say, says it is. Okay, it's what the synod it's what the synod says that it is. Um, you are not going to have. A responsibility and authority in that way, but if you, but if you believe that the church has the keys and have the responsibility to exercise those keys, um, then you might think that that's a really bad way to put things together, in a way that it ends up functionally firing them for those critical roles. Um, and I would say uh, in that those holding such a view, consciously or unconsciously, 
um, will put a lower premium on the importance of church membership and rootedness in a local church. Because after all, it's the elders' jobs to be in the, the, the weeds of life. It's the elders' job to sort all that stuff out. But we kick it up to the professionals. We voted them in, if we did. A lot of times that's not what happened either. It's got a point of We vote them in, and that's their job. They're the ones who've been to seminary. They're supposed to be able to discern all the false teaching. They're the ones who handle our church discipline. They're the ones who regulate our membership. They just sent us an email that says, um, we, uh, that we're bringing this person into membership, and here's how they got saved. Just want to make an announcement to everyone. This is what's happening. There's no participation. And some of you who come out of the hierarchical churches, some of you who come out of the PCA, you know this. There's not like, all right, let's get together and, and have a vote on church discipline, the punishment by the majority. It's not there. The, the elders in the, in the presbytery decide those things. Okay? If you find yourself un, under an unfaithful bishop, if you're Anglican, or a, un, a, 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 a faithless presbytery, you know what you do? You leave and go to a different church. There, there isn't, you're a, you're a subject, not a citizen. Okay? Citizens participate in decision-making at some level. Subjects just enact the rulings that come down. So I would say that a hierarchical church model like this, where final authority kicks it up out, out, outside of the local church altogether or up to the top, that members are functionally fired from their God-given responsibility to wield the keys, and guess what? Those muscles atrophy. Those muscles of discerning the gospel and listening to people's stories and, and having to make a call about things like church discipline where it's hard and you've got to put a vote down on a piece of paper in this room. and it's, it's a heavy, heavy responsibility, which leads to the final one. If a church has an understanding of final authority that places authority in the entire congregation, then functionally, membership is understood as an office. Functionally. Membership is a vetted position with requirements and responsibilities, all right? There are requirements to be a, a member. You have to have repented in the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be walking. We say this at the beginning of the Lord's Supper every time, right? You have to be displaying the fruits of righteousness. You have to be committed to assembling together with the saints and not forsaking, not forsaking the assembly. Um, in our church in particular, we have a church covenant that talks about um, supporting our local ministers of the gospel, resolving conflict and grace, all the rest. There is So being a member here is not uh, just someone shows up and someone knows your name, and, and it shouldn't be in any local church. Membership is a vetted position with requirements and responsibilities. Remember 2 Thessalonians 3, whoever does not obey the words of this letter, identify who that is and have nothing to do with them, so that they may put to shame, but don't treat them as an as a, um, enemy, but regard them as a brother. It's like we're supposed to be looking around we're supposed to be guarding the holiness of the camp. We're supposed to be guarding the holiness of the camp. That's part of the responsibilities and the responsibility to make disciples both in our homes and outside of our homes and church. So membership functionally, if final authority is in the gathered body, then membership is understood as an office. Such members are called to take ownership of their local church membership in the weightiest manner possible while submitting to elders who lead them in a better standing of the truths of the gospel, the what? and how to be the people who, who live in light of it, okay? So there are some very, very meaningful, practical things that, um, that there's some practical, very meaningful, practical implications 
um, that come into play here with where one answers the question, where does authority lie towards the end of what am I, how am I going to situate myself in church? Who has the right to tell me this or that? Who has the right to speak for heaven to the nations, to the unbelieving government, for example? Who, who can do that authoritatively? How you answer that question, not a, I don't have a theology at all. I have a theology where final authority is in tradition or succession. I have a theology where final authority is kicked up to the top or outside. Or I have a theology where final authority rests with the gathered body. All of those have very different implications practically. Okay, and I would, in my personal, my personal view, is that this final one not only is most faithful to what Scripture says, but also has the weightiest role for membership by far out of all these. By far, you are not fired from membership from your responsibility to contribute to wielding the keys on a congregationalist model. Okay, any questions about that before I go into the misconceptions? I've got about eight minutes left. I think I can get through one or two of them at least. Was that helpful to see the different, how you're going to land if you have a different answer to this question? And those do represent the major answers in church, by far the major categories in church history right here. All right, well, let's close today by talking about clearing up some misconceptions. Clearing up misconceptions, um, because certainly I wouldn't want you to think that I would you know, present this and then everyone listening ever would be like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's time to change my view. Uh, especially uh, some of our Presbyterian friends um, who I love dearly. Here's an objection. What about this one right here? In congregationalism, elders don't lead. They just walk in front. All right? We need real authority and leadership. We need real authority and leadership. Listen, congregationalism, congregationalism is just like representative government in Republican democracies. What we're saying is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna nominate somebody and they're going to reflect... They're supposed to reflect, uh, you know, our views. Just like we elect a, whatever, I go vote for a, a senator or a, or a who, a president, whoever it is. Um, they are to reflect the will of the people. They reflect the will of the people. And so the objection here is that congregationalism, um, yeah, they sure they have elders, but the elders are, uh, you know, kind of yes men. And uh, they don't really lead. They just walk in front where everyone else tells them, where, 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 go, where are we going next? That way. Okay, I'll make sure to turn left. Okay? So they're leading, but they're not really leading. They're just walking in front. Okay. In poor congregationalism, this is true. In bad congregationalism, this is true. Okay? Um, but here's the thing. Elders are responsible for declaring and teaching the word of God and not lobbying for the interests of particular constituencies within the church. And it simply does not matter who voted to affirm them being an elder. They voted to affirm that man in an office. Okay, Not to be confused with voting to affirm that man for all the decisions he'll make that I hopefully agree with. Okay? You're looking at a man and saying, this is the kind of man who we can trust to manage the household of God. I'm not going to try to micromanage him at every single turn. Elders are responsible for declaring and teaching the word of God, not lobbying for interests within the congregation and just being reflective of um, the constituency. However, they should have a very clear pulse on the congregation, but not for the purpose of um, being ruled by them, but because shepherds smell like sheep. Right? Shepherds smell like sheep. So they should be influenced by the congregation. 
But their ultimate authority is not to represent just what everyone else, everyone wants to do all the time. It's to declare and preach the word of God and shepherd the household of God. So the objection founders for two reasons pass that. First, it identifies authority with final authority. As a, as under, instead of understanding elders as having a particular kind of authority to bind consciences according to the word of God, which is the elder is the only office in the church, the only people in the church who have the authority to do that. Um, so we've argued in congregationalism that, that there are two kinds of authority, one that elders have and then the one that the whole congregation has to wield the keys. Um, and this just confuses, this, this just just demolishes the distinction between the two and says that if, if elders don't have final authority, they don't have any real authority at all. Um, and that leads to the second point here that it falters because it misunderstands leadership necessarily as a title or voting power instead of influence. Um, elders might have one vote in the congregational meeting, but they're way they're the most influential people in a church in many cases. Sometimes that's not the case. You've got that person who's been there for like 30 years and there's been 10, you know, seven pastors have turned over and that one person has been holding the line. And sometimes you can have someone who's functionally, you know, more influential than the seventh pastor who's now in here and everyone thinks will probably be gone soon. But for the most part, the elders are going to be the most influential people in, in church in terms of the teaching, managing, influencing, the thought life, shepherding the hearts of the church, okay? And so, yeah, um, even though elders only have one vote, they, all, they, they, they should utilize their influence, which they no doubt have, for the good of the people. And they should be aware of that dynamic in their interactions with people, both in teaching and in setting an example, because people are watching, and elders should be aware of that, that they have a disproportionate influence that other people do not have. All right, what about this next one? And we're going to close right here. Congregationalism breeds isolationist autonomy. Isolationist autonomy. In congregationalism, insular churches are disconnected from the larger body of Christ, having no accountability and can grow stagnant and sick in their own echo chambers. And here's what I would suggest about that. I would say churches certainly can grow static and sick in their own echo chambers. But I would suggest that the churches to whom this criticism accurately falls adopted congregationalism because they want to be insular and isolationist, not because congregationalism itself makes someone isolation. Guess what? Hey, if you're evaluating church models and you don't want anyone to ever tell you what you want to do and you want to do your own thing and you want to listen to it, guess what? Oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. I'll just find a bunch of yes men and women who all believe the same thing. It's an echo chamber where we all drink the same Kool-Aid. We adopt the same cultural stances towards everything. Here we are. Oh, this is so nice. It's like a little corner of heaven on earth. We don't want to have anyone to do anything. Uh, we don't want to have anything to do with anyone else. We're going to listen to anyone else. We're just doing our own thing on our own lane. Which one of these? Oh, look at this. How nice. We can be autonomous. So I would suggest that it's the person who desires to be autonomous and insular who could pursue this the wrong way. Um, but the fault here, uh, it falters on the assumption, well, no, it falters on two things, but let me just name the name one. The, the verdict of history is in, okay? And the contemporary church scene is as well. Congregationalist churches have thrived in associations for years and years and years. There is, for example, a rich history of Baptist associationalism, uh, whatever you think about the, you know, the SBC is not having its finest moment right now. But you have the Southern Baptist Convention. All those are, almost all of them are congregationalist churches, at least in theory. Okay, they are independent, 
autonomous churches. Um, well, you know, I need to I need to walk that one back. That's not true. That's not true. There are many elder-led congregationalist churches in the SBC. There are also a lot of, I think, the individual ones where it's just a pure democracy. Okay, there are plenty of elder-led, uh, reformed, uh, uh, congregationalist churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that are networked very closely together uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. There have been, in fact, uh, Renahan just came out with a new book, uh, or a recent, a recent work, of book. maybe it wasn't so recent, on um, Reformed Baptist associationalism. You have the phenomenon of what I call the Denama Network. You got so, the Sojourn Network, uh, Acts 29. You've got all, all these churches where they, are, they preserve congregationalism but they're intimately connected with each other. It's not an insulated, isolated experience. It's just that authority, final authority, rests with the local church, not with some kind of, not with something that goes um, above that. And finally, it falters on the assumption that um, if the if there's if final authority doesn't rest outside of the local church, that there's no accountability at all. That there's no concern for per pursuit of external unity, no genuine concern or cooperation with other churches, and that's just not true either. Um, while those opportunities are going to be different for each church relative to where they are, how long they've been around, nothing about congregationalism breeds an insular mindset. I mean, Stephen and I go to pastors fraternals. We talk to other churches. We have many occasions where other churches are, have a pastor who comes in and preaches for us. Both Stephen and I have preached um, at other churches. There's nothing about congregationalism that breeds isolationism and, and echo chambering, except for the individuals in it who want to do that. Okay, so that's not a particularly strong objection to the theology of congregationalism. It's really more of an indictment of a particular personal disposition. Okay, all right, I need to pause here. I'm one minute over. Thank, thankful for the time. We will finish up uh, congregationalism next week, where the authority lies, um, and uh, we will go ahead into the next section of the ecclesiology uh, module here. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, meeting with us here in these few moments and um, hopefully giving clarity. I pray, if anything, that someone will walk out of this room and have a higher view of membership as a result of their understanding of the Scripture and exercising the keys where authority lies. Um, I pray that this would not be a dry academic exercise, but it, that it really would cause people to see themselves as um, ambassadors for Christ in a, in a different way, uh, members of an embassy of a far country um, that are citizens uh, whose views and, and whose opinions matter and help shape the church and who can, in conjunction with one another, gather together, speak authoritatively on behalf of heaven. Thank you. Um, for that incredible privilege, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our uh, our next hour, our worship service as well. I pray that it would be pleasing to you, that the fellowship here today would be sweet. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.